All right. This question comes from Mimabip Gorky, who says, which parts of your design by chaos presentation do you now disagree with? Uh, that would require remembering it. So, so the Scotch Hey everybody, welcome to episode 330 of Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam and I'm not that. I'm Sam and I'm the artist. And this is a show where we talk about life, business, and working in the games industry. Today is September 23rd, 2021. Dunk on everyone. And before we get started, we have a warning there will be profanity in this show. Uh, so this is going to be very exciting. This kind of new thing that we're trying. So mm-hmm. we'll see how we'll see how it goes. Yeah, uh, people have been asking also, us for a clean show, and we've been like, we've just done so many of those, you know. I think it's just time to yeah, branch out nah, a bit. Try it's out time some to profanity. do something new, you know. Uh, and we'd also like to thank our recurring supporters over at moneygrab.bscotch.net who donate uh, monthly to the podcast. Like, thank you very much. Uh, now we're just going to get right into some questions. We're really just going hard on the questions these days. And I'm, I'm honestly, I'm digging it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just got to make okay. up for your, your past mistakes, you know, which is to say not answering questions a lot on the podcast. That's the yeah. Mistake. Yeah. And if, you know, I feel so connected yeah. to our, yeah. to our listeners. Like it's such a conversation now. It's very really give and take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just want to keep that uh, rolling. You know, I feel like everyone needs everyone needs an ear to listen to. Uh, I mean, what? Yeah, yeah. Needs a bend ear. ear. Li- everyone you know, like needs a mouth cup, to talk you know, into. You, you know? cup your hand over your own ear so you can <laughs> hear your ear. Yeah, everyone needs to cup their own ears to get better, yeah. like sonic direction. You know, so you like can a hear bat, it. like mm-hmm. a bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with that, let's get into the questions. The questions come from our listeners at podcast.bscotch.net. So if you want to get your question onto an episode, just go there and, you know, ask. Highest upvoted question. Uh, it's actually two questions, which are basically the same question. Mm. So I'll just summarize. They're they're from both from Mopate Flatunk. And the basic gist of both questions is, do we do any kind of social fun group activities as a team, as a mm. studio? Yes. Yes, we do. We do a thing called Togetherness Days, basically once a quarter, where in the morning everyone kind of wraps up their stuff and then we order usually a pizza because everyone knows corporate pizza parties. That's how you uh, – That's how you how celebrate. You, that's how you celebrate. That's also how you placate any you know employee woes about – I mean literally anything. Yeah, it's pizza the only is way like to south. stop an insurrection. It really is, and so uh, so we we get pizza for everybody or calza. We really actually whatever you want to be honest. It's not. Yeah, I mean honestly, honestly, like if the if the British had just thrown a pizza party for the colonies back in the 1700s, I feel you know, like I think they would have felt would have taken a history would have taken a very different course. Yeah. Absolutely. You, know? <laughs> you would have the the Boston pizza party instead of the Boston tea party. Yeah, know? and uh, then everybody would just been. Pumped and just chilling, having mm-hmm. pizza, vibing, but and no, still still grumbling happening. a little bit, you know. But at the same time, being like, I yeah, guess but this, this pizza is good. Yeah. yeah. So we do that every <laughs> uh, once a quarter, and along with that, then we uh, buy a, a a game or two, in particular for multiplayer stuff, give it to everybody, and then that way that day, then we just spend just literally playing games together for like five or six hours, um, while eating our delicious pizza slash whatever, and. You know, it was it was inspired by swim team because mm-hmm. on the swim team 
the night before a swim meet, we would have togetherness night where some member of the team would host uh, a get together and we would basically just eat just a, just a shit ton of pasta, basically carbs. Because, you know, you got you to carb load up before the big day. I don't, is that even real? You know, the uh, more I think about not, it, it's yeah. like if I ate uh, just a ton of food like 12 or 18 hours before an event, like am I still getting energy from that or do I just have to poop really well, bad? I mean, is you're going like- to pack <laughs> up some, you know, a little bit like fat stores and stuff, but not – like how I, yeah, but how on demand is that? You I know, don't when I'm like very. in the middle of a fifty me, fifty meter freestyle. Yeah, the main thing <laughs> is kicking in after fifteen seconds of activity. No, yeah. you just need a fuckload of yeah. glucose basically while you're while you're while you're swimming. Like if you get a if you like an IV bag hanging above you while you're swimming and it's just dripping glucose straight into your bloodstream, like that's yeah. Ooh, or you just put it, or you just suck on a Jolly Rancher while you're swimming. You know that'll oh yeah, nothing could possibly though. go wrong. Yeah, with that, <laughs> that'll, that'll that'll take care of but that. But no you can problem. use lifesavers, which are also thematically appropriate, and then you won't yeah. choke and die. So the reason they're called lifesavers is because since it's got a hole in the middle, when you swallow it to choke to death on it, you can well, still yeah, breathe. You can still breathe through it. Yep. Uh, Amazing. Amazing marketing strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's important when choosing what to name your product, you should name it around what would happen if someone almost died while using it. You know, I feel like that's a really good way to – we got to let people know that you've been thoughtful about, you know, their mortality, especially these days. Everyone, you know, everyone's like, thank you. There's a lot of ways we can die right now. So it's really nice to have candy being so thoughtful about the fact that we could choke to death on it. Yeah. So if you get like a rug, you know, that's like really, really plushy, you know, or whatever, uh, you know, they call those like hip, hip brake softeners, right? Yep. That's what those rugs are called. Mm Because when you fall on them, you know, it's just soften. The blow. Mm-hmm. You're not going to break your hip as bad. And that's, hip savers. That's that's just marketing, right? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we would do that. I don't know. Yeah, it was fun, and we kind of wanted to bring that into our into our studio of just mm-hmm. like you sometimes you just got to hang out and eat a lot of carbs as a as a team. Yeah, I think it's because you, know? you every day is is always so focused on you know moving everything forward that you don't really you don't actually have built in time to to celebrate in the way that because even when people do postmortems and stuff like that uh, again you're still actually looking for problems and then solving those problems while you're doing it it's not just hanging out it's not just uh it's not just vibing over some carbs yeah. you know and sometimes it's nice i think to have that have that baseline bond in place uh which can be you know boosted up in particular by really good co-op games and stuff like that uh it's a very good time so yeah now at some point you know once you get to like 50 people, 100 people, it's a little bit harder to do, you know, because you just need so much pizza, but it's still it's still doable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so yeah, that's what we do. Fun. Carbs, games, hanging out. Uh, all right, next question comes from C Price, who says, what are your thoughts on GitHub Copilot? How long until all the programmers uh. are replaced by AI that's figured out how to copy-paste Stack Overflow answers until the tests pass. <laughs> Take it away, Adam. We've been watching Adam use this thing. It's creepy it's, uh, as hell, i got to tell you. So you'll have to, you'll have to keep this like cool. real high level, but uh, what is it? So so, so you, we've all heard everybody talking about machine learning all the time, right? And like mm-hmm. everyone's all about AI and blockchain and machines learning and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So machine learning is just a fancy way to say – statistics with really big numbers of things. That's all it is, right? 
and uh, and then just and yes. then figuring out clever, clever tricks to to look for patterns in huge amounts of data. Um, so, for example, if I wanted to to use machine learning to make a robot that could identify pictures of dogs, mm-hmm. you need to show it a billion pictures of dogs and also a billion pictures of things that are not dogs. Things you, that are not dogs. And you tell it. <laughs> you tell it. The things – and this, this is called the training set. So the set of things that you tell it, hey, these are dogs and these are not dogs, right? And then it basically just identifies a jillion little statistical patterns. Yeah, with enough which data. is – So now you feed it a new picture. Quite, it's not quite as smart as a person, right? Where it's like you can – a person can see some dogs and you can be like, these are dogs, right? And the person's like, oh, yeah, okay. Conceptually, like I can kind of extrapolate well, from there. it's actually you know? similar though because because – what does it mean when you say you see a dog, right? Because you don't see a picture of a dog. You see a dog in real life moving around doing stuff. So you're seeing it yeah. every like angle conceivable. You're seeing it lots of different backdrops and stuff, right? So in essence, this is what we do is yes. our brains we are just, just looking at jillions of samples of data that's all similar but not the same, right? But it's coming in constantly. It's all patterns, pa- yeah. pattern recognition. And so this is, what, this is what our brains do by default is we actually – like you think of yourself as seeing – like when you look at you know the wall in front of you and you see like the outline of something, you see a door or whatever. You're identifying all these objects, right? Um, but those that's not what you're seeing actually, right? You're you're just seeing a bunch of colors hitting your retinas. That's it. Um, even 3Dness isn't like a thing you're seeing, right? That's just there's just a difference between sensation and perception. Is what yeah, you're and so your brain is yeah. filtering constantly as stuff comes in and it's pulling out patterns and throwing away the rest. So yeah. the idea is. Have computers do the same thing. And once you have enough computing power and storage, you just show them a jillion things and say, okay, here's a new thing. Is that a dog? Right. Uh, or you can do it to make to generate stuff. So you can say, okay, you've seen a million pictures of dogs. Make one, right? Make me a dog computer. Make a dog picture. So you so you've probably seen some of the cool, weird, creepy stuff that people have been doing lately with this, where they'll generate uh completely new people, right? They'll take like a jillion pictures of people and have a computer say, okay, I'm going to make a new person, right? Like a portrait of a person basically. And it looks exactly like a person would look, but it's, that person doesn't exist, right? And this computer just invented it. So yeah, you have like, website, websites like this person doesn't exist.com or something like that. Know. And it's like, it's just every time you load it, it's a randomly generated human face that looks just it looks like a picture of right. a person, but it's computer but it's just, just yeah, generated. It's just imaginary. <laughs> and yeah, they, they have this for like cats and like just anything, right? Anything there's lots of pictures of then people then yeah. So you get these big training sets and you can either generate or classify. Those are kind of the two things you're trying to do. Which brings us back to GitHub Copilot. So GitHub, place where people can store code. In particular, open source code that everybody can just see and look at, right? And so uh, kind of seemingly behind the scenes a bit, um, the people at GitHub, which was purchased by Microsoft a few years ago, have been uh, creating this machine learning program using all of the publicly visible code that they store as the training set with the goal of it being generative so that you can, as you're writing code, it can be looking at the code that you're writing. And then basically look for all the similar code to what you're doing that it has in its training in its set of data, and then try to spit out something that is that like makes sense given all of that, all of those patterns that it's discovered, right? So that's why I call it copilot. It's like having a buddy who's who's pair programming with you, but they're a robot, right? 
using yeah, so start writing code and and then the robot's like yeah i've seen something like this before in mm-hmm. 3 billion other projects let yeah. me just uh fill in some blanks for you yeah but it's what it is it's uh it's very creepy and cool because it's it's sort of like those those things that generate human faces right where it's not that it's literally like takes an eyeball and then like it's it, it's not that it goes and grabs a person that already exists because because it knows that the person looks like this. I've, like if you were to be an artist, you know, like drawing a blue eye, it's not going to go grab a picture of somebody with a blue eye and then like put that person's picture in there, right? It still makes something else and it still makes use of what all the other stuff that you're doing. And so it'll be basically like looking at all the code that you've written so far, like in your whole project, you know, and it'll identify the patterns that are in there. And then it'll still write code that like uses all of your variable names and all of like, all the stuff that you're doing. Yeah. So it's not even about you filling in the blanks. It's like it it actually says like here's probably the function that you were about to write. Mm-hmm. Boop, there it is. Yeah, right? but you using like, the using the stuff that's already in your code base too, though. Right. Yeah. Isn't like it's ready to go. Right. Yeah. But of course, it's, it may. Of course, it's not always like exactly what you intended or whatever. But then sometimes, Adam, yeah. you were saying like you would look at it and you're like, wait a minute, this is actually probably like better than what I was thinking. Like there were some things in here that I wasn't it's, actually remembering. Yeah, it's you know? so yeah. The, the code itself is rarely like particularly <laughs> exactly good. what you wanted, but uh, it's it's also not. Yeah, it's also rarely just exactly what I need. Um, but it often because it's like seeing all the rest of my code, right? And so there's stuff that I've forgotten about my own code that it, that it hasn't forgotten, right? And so right. It, <laughs> it will it will like spit out a thing. I'll be like, oh yeah. So like a good example is is if you have a whole bunch of different cases you need to work through. Like some value could be one of ten different things, right? And so you're like, okay. If the value is this, do this. If the value is that, do that. Right? You start going down the list. Yeah. But you might not what remember the 10 things it could be, right? Yeah. But it does. And so as you start typing if, it's just like, did you mean all of this? And it just puts out a whole pocket. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, if. Yeah. You just like – you just look. You don't even type if. You just look at it. And it's like I know where you're going. Yeah, I know where you're going. With yeah, this. I pick it up. I pick it up with this thread. I got. <laughs> yeah. So I think like, so. The cool thing about it for for me then has been that for so we refer to boilerplate code as stuff like it's not hard. Any any two people would do it roughly the same way. It's the kind of stuff you do all the time. So looking at a bunch of cases and doing if else's is an example of that. Um, and and so it's particularly good at recognizing these kinds of just patterns, right? Because like the more obvious it is a pattern, the better of a job it can do. And that actually tends to correspond to stuff that's really boring to, to mm-hmm. deal with, right? And also error prone because you have to like retype similar stuff over and over again. And so I found it to be particularly good at that. And uh, and I also found that if I, depending on how well I do my naming conventions for things, it also does better or worse. And actually, just this morning, before we started, I was doing some programming, and uh, and I needed to write out a function. So I was looking at somebody's documentation. They're like, "Okay, here's how you do whatever. Here's how you how you verify this thing." And it's a it's a it's a technique that I've used before a bunch of times. So like, I know where all the things are I would need to go look up to be able to do it, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't do it often, so I would still have to go look all of that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wrote out my function. I, I wrote out the the uh, description as a comment of what this function was. I was about to write, wrote the name of the function, right? And all of a sudden, <laughs> Copilot was just like, "Do you mean this?" And it spat out the exact function I was going to need to write, like literally the exact <laughs> function. <laughs> uh, and it was because it took the information out of the comment that I had written, right? Where where my comment described 
just in human English, what it was I was about to do. And so it took all the words in there in combination with how my to correlate var- them with yeah. your variables. Yeah, exactly. With how I named my function. And it was like, oh, okay, I see what you're doing here. Right. And it was just spat it out. Because again, this is a thing that like, because it was basically, it's, it's, a, it's, a ver- it was verifying a, a, a security signature basically on a, on a, on a thing that happens data, a right? lot. Right. It's just a thing that happens a lot. Like, mm-hmm. like, and there are lots of different slight variants of it, but the pattern is the same every time. Right. And so it was able to like, to see what I was going to do based on the words that I had used and then just grab the thing. So like, so it's not that it, well, that's, that's is, the wild thing. Cause I yeah. mean, the reason that we have code is because English or language, like human language is loose. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so, so if you said, uh, you know, I, I want to grab this token and verify that it's secure against this other thing. Yeah. Right. Well, like, what does what, secure what, mean? What, what do you mean token? by grab? Like what yeah. token? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by grab it? Like where are you grabbing it from? And like yeah. what, how secure are you looking to do? And what? How do you want to verify it? Right. And so, so you you can describe that, but then when it comes to action, and that's just a sentence. Yeah. When it comes to to implementing that in code, that could be a thousand lines of code. Mm-hmm. You know, to, yep. to exactly tell the machine just piece by piece, you know, atom by atom, you know, mm-hmm. what is it that you're doing very to do all specifically. Of this? Yeah. Um, and yeah. the fact that you can have a bunch of stuff in your project and then you can like write out a sentence like that. <laughs> it's probably a little more descriptive than that, but, but that copod's like, okay, well like, yeah, yeah it's, you, you still have to use like, I the see right, how this, yeah, right. I you still have to, you still have to use the words that get it into the right place. Right. But, but even still, yeah, I think that's, that's a good description of it is of basically it's a mechanism by which you can, get closer to being able to just say as a programmer in like, it's still technical English, but, but it's just English now, not code, what it is you're trying to accomplish and then get a decent approximation. It's sometimes just a actually fully functional Good example. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's, what's amazing about this is how, so when I think about people talking about learning how to program, you know, way, way back yonder using punch yeah. cards and stuff um, or, or even, even at the very beginning, you know, people using uh, assembly language to like tell the computer to do things. You know, it's just ones and zeros. It's like how the punch cards work, right? It's mm-hmm. either it's punched or it's not punched. Um, and having to understand things on <clears throat> such a, a microscopic level uh, of how the machine works, right? And you're basically you're basically talking to the machine in the exact kind of language that it knows, which is on switches and off switches, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and that's so opaque, right? And very hard to understand for as a, as a human. And then, and then we get into a point where now we have actual uh, scripting languages like, you know, C, C++ and stuff like that. Um, and you start to abs- abs- create a layer of abstraction, right? Where you write this, <clears throat> this thing out in words that are largely human readable, but still like very specific, Mm-hmm. Right. It's code, meaning it's like it's encoded. Um, and then that gets converted into zeros and ones down the, down the line. Right. It gets compiled into these zeros and ones and then the machine reads that. And what I think is kind of amazing about something like Copilot is this is, I think, the, the tip of of the next wave. Right. Which is that which is that, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if 30, 40 years from now um, that people who are programmers right, are largely programming via just mostly just describing what they want to happen. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that and that it gets it gets filled in, right? Um, 
or there may even be uh, multiple late like levels of of programming, right? Where it's like some people do know like quite a bit of the code, and they can kind of debug things a little bit better, you know, down at the code level. But most people who program will just be, you know, just saying what they want the computer to do, kind of yeah, well, <laughs> in and, English. And we already, yeah. I mean, everything that we're doing is trying to, you know, have higher and higher layers of abstraction so that. So that uh, it's just more accessible. Just, you, can you can do more. You can do it can faster. Do, you can get more you know? done. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, so the discussions around GitHub Copilot are really interesting. Uh, I do want to make a, a note about and uh, speaking of accessibility, um, there are two obvious, really huge benefits of something like GitHub Copilot. Uh, one is for new programmers. Mm-hmm. Um, the discussion around this, I guess the the people freaking out about this is. The, the thing they like to look, point at is they're like, oh, now people can write even more code they don't understand. And so this is going to be horrible for beginner programmers, which is horrible. Beginner programmers don't understand any code. That was the whole point. Mm-hmm. And this is the <laughs> same beginner. kind of yeah. horseshit that, that makes me really angry when, when, uh, when people teaching programming avoid having people use tools like things that do mm-hmm. autocomplete and that kind of stuff, right? Um, with this, this, and this is actually true for all of teaching, right? There's this bizarre focus on memorization, you know, and for, and that, that being an indicator that you have learned something instead of the ability to understand the principles and then use machines to do the rest. Right. So that, well, it's, it, it's actually, to me, this is the same as like doing long division of numbers on paper. Yeah. Right. As a, as a means of like learning division. Right. And I think, I think I, that's so hard for people to, to sort of like grok and really internalize because you're not learning why you need division. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're learning how division happens, mm-hmm. uh, which but, o- but it, only which ex- sort of right because you're only actually sort of yeah because you're, you're learning the process. You're not actually learning yeah. like right and. You're learning how to do it by hand. You're not necessarily learning all of the yeah, – but, Yeah, but what does that do for you, right? Because if you think about that, if you think about you dividing two numbers, uh, like what what did us doing I mean, longhand division do for us to help us understand how to – how to? Yeah, to, to me this would be no different than if you went to driver's ed, you know, and they're like, okay, so first we're going to build an engine. Then you're going to yeah. learn how to drive the car. And it's like, but somebody yeah, else why, is though? building the engine. Like I don't – Somebody that's not part of it, right? Mm-hmm. So, and, and this is how I felt when I, you know, I've talked in the past about my computer science experience uh, in college, which was my the one and only computer science course I took was largely focused on on how computers uh, compile things down to assembly language and how memory pointers work and stuff like that. And at the end of it, I couldn't write any code, and I didn't well, know why. And that's because why that was, I had learned all this. <laughs> that was a computer science course, right? And that's that's what computer science is. It wasn't to be a for. programming course. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the problem uh, is that colleges don't actually have uh, programming as a discipline. Yeah. It's always computer science. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so so I think so. There's that part of this discussion which I think is just completely misguided and wrong. Silly. Of of and, and but there is there is a truth there. But that's not about beginners. It's just about it's just about the, the that period, which is that if you whether you're copy pasting somebody else's code, whether it's being written for you by by a robot, whether you're just looking at somebody else's code to to collaborate in some way. In all cases, if you don't understand what you're looking at, then you can't know if it makes sense, right? You can't know where the possible yeah. issues could lie. You don't know how to fix it if it doesn't work. That's 
that's no less true now than it was before GitHub Copilot was doing this thing. Yeah, I feel like if you got to yeah. make that argument, then you'd have to argue against Stack Overflow too, because like the reality is, everyone's just copy pasting yeah. shit. Oh, you, and then you could argue against having a peer having a peer review of your code, because what if that person doesn't know how the thing works? Right, that you wrote. Yeah, it's a weird. Help. It's a weird. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Line of yeah, but also, you know, you shouldn't need people to review your code because you're supposed to always know 100 percent of everything about how your code works and why. So, like, you know, mm-hmm. peer review mm-hmm. shouldn't even happen. <laughs> yeah. So, like, yeah. So I don't yeah, think, I don't think that sure argument absurd. works. Yeah. Um, but yeah. so, so for me, so my opinion on the matter is that is that uh, learning programming or learning anything um, should actually prov- use be tool based. It should. You should have autocomplete. You should have things like in a copilot that that you basically explain what you're trying to do, and then it can spit out the code for you. Because none of it today is, and I think it'll be a long time before it is true that the code that gets spat out is just always exactly what you needed, right? Um, but even if it was, the hard part of programming mm-hmm. is first and foremost understanding the problem that you're trying to solve and articulating all of the things that would have to happen to solve that problem, right? Yeah. The writing of the code is just busy work. Then. Yeah. And that's actually, that's the <laughs> gate, right? Because the, the real hard part is not, like the reason that programming is hard is because you have to learn a jillion things and like learn exactly the tiny details of why you have to do it this way, but not that way. And like why this word means what it does here, but means something else there and all this kind of stuff, right? And and that's all very cool and interesting. And like, I, I love that aspect of, of programming, but that's not why we program. We don't program so that we can write out for loops and write functions, right? We do it to solve interesting problems. And so, but that step, that solving interesting problem step of breaking a problem down into something a computer can understand, which is not even about that. It's actually about breaking a thing down into something so specific and well-defined and concrete that there's no ambiguity. That's, that's what we actually are doing as programmers, right? That is the thing that nobody's fucking doing because they're focused on, oh, we got to learn programming now, right? Don't use any tools, though. We don't want you to cheat, right? Right. Uh, and <laughs> and so, so the focus that's a is skill not that you're always going to need, down. you know. Yeah. Well, and that's the root thing that actually matters. And so, so to me, the easier it gets to write code, and the easier it gets to validate code, uh, and actually, the less code we have to write, the better, because then we can focus on the part that people are really good at. That computers are still um, even much further away from than they are with all this yeah. other stuff that they're good at, which is. Seeing a problem out in the world that hasn't been articulated yet. (laughs) Yeah, making new problems, finding new problems. Yeah, and breaking them down and and describing them accurately. Um, So I think it's really good for that. And then as a person with ADHD, I have to say that as a a mechanism of of accessibility and support for my ability to do my job as a programmer, um, having something like this is truly fucking amazing because coming back to some code after you haven't seen it for a while, like – it hasn't mm. forgotten anything, right? It knows what's going on there. Um, the stuff that's really boring, which as a person with ADHD is a big, big, big problem, right? You know, most uh, is, of it. Yeah, most <laughs> of it is the stuff it's really good at. But also because now you're you're now editing somebody else's code, right? So the, the more boring the thing gets that you're working on, the more likely it's already been solved in a jillion variations by mm-hmm. other people. So it's the more likely that that a robot can help you. But also, you know, you're doing something a little specific at least. You're not just doing the exact same thing everybody else is doing. And so you can't just have it spit out the code and be like, fuck yes, I'm done now, right? Uh, you have to now edit it and see like, okay, does this does this actually do what I needed it to, especially given my specific, you know, context? Or did it just give me a ten, like a starting point? And, and so you still have to go read it closely. 
And so it now converts what is a boring thing, which is doing something easy, right, mm-hmm. into an interesting hard thing, mm-hmm. which is look at the thing that got done and see if right. it makes Review sense. And correct. Review and yeah. edit. And, uh, and so I think that's an incredibly powerful thing to be able to do. Um, so yeah, so I guess long story short, I would say already using it. I've been now using it for a month probably. Um, I just, I, I don't want to go back. I'm not going to go back. <laughs> you know, I will, but I will but just also use the, it now. In the, in the question too, is kind of framed as, uh, I think jokingly, but not super jokingly, you know, uh, how long until all the programmers are, you know, replaced by AI. And I think, th- I mean, this, this is always the question when it comes to new technology that makes things easier for people, right? Like robots in factories or, or whatever the case may be, horse, uh, cars instead of horses, mm-hmm. um, you know, what's going to happen to all the buggy drivers, right? Or the people who tend to the horse, well, you know, the, there are other things uh, to do, and there's an infinite stream of problems coming our way. Uh, the Jevons paradox says that uh, instead of there being less programmers, there will probably be more programmers now because yep. programming will be easier. Yeah, programming and- will mean something else. And, 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 and we've already been seeing this. We've been seeing this for in particular the past decade in, in the web programming scene mm-hmm. because the demand for web-based technology has been only increasing and dramatically. Yeah. The number of programmers, um, and, and meaning people who are building web technology in some aspect, uh, has also been growing, right? And actually, not even, it's not even fast enough. Every year, <laughs> yeah, it's getting easier every year, and, and it's getting easier in this really particular way, which is, uh, and you'll actually see these complaints mounting also as you go look at the the web scene, because the idea is like, oh, it used to be that you could just like write a, a web page with like pure ass HTML and JavaScript. And like, that was all you had to know when you were done. And people today are like, Oh now you need to know a thousand frameworks and all this like build steps. And like, you have to set up this complicated dev environment, you know, and all of this. Right. And, uh, and that's true in the sense of like, what is hard now is a different thing, which is correct. Setting it all up. Right. But once it's set up, everything is infinitely easier than it was. And so what you're seeing out, like out in the, in the tech space, the web tech space is that there are, the number of people who are like really technical and like understand how computers work, right? It's kind of the same as it always was, but what those people yeah, are now working on is building that part, right? And then everybody else coming in doesn't have to learn nearly as much as they used to to be incredibly productive and go out and solve problems. And so, so yeah, there's, there's now just, we're able to accomplish more and we're able to support more people doing stuff while also accomplishing way more because the demands for stuff being done keep going up, right? And the uh, amount of stuff that a single person can now accomplish with less and less training just keeps going up, up, right? Yeah. So yeah, this is, when we're in late stage capitalism, you can't count on the whole idea that like, oh yeah, there's just going to be a job for everybody. And once you have a job, you can have that one job for 50 years and the world won't change around you and you won't have to find a new one and now figure out how to get trained in a new thing or whatever, right? That the, The problem isn't the robots, Right, it's something. It's, a, it's something else. It's um, technology. No, I mean, no, I mean, no, I mean the problem. It's no, I'm saying like yeah. I'm saying yeah. that 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 there's a there's a pace of change, right? That is, it's compounding, right? Mm-hmm. And so, it may have been the case that you know in the 1700s, if you were born into a blacksmith family, you know, blacksmithing didn't change a whole hell of a lot in your lifetime, mm-hmm. right? And you were able to keep doing that thing. Um, but but because of the fact that we live in a 
in a society where everybody needs to have a job to live, right? Mm-hmm. And and combining that with the fact that tech, the pace of technology uh, change compounds upon itself, mm-hmm. right? And it always, it always those, did, those two right? things coming together. It yeah. always did, but it's, it's exponential pace. growth. So when you're yeah. when there isn't much, then exponential growth is also it's fine. It's just well, slow, and just right? think about think about also like with GitHub Copilot. Um, this is a, this is a self perpetuating sort of ramp up, right? Because like GitHub Copilot gets better at its job as its sample size of code increases, yeah. mm-hmm. right? And like Adam, you were saying all of a sudden you're able to produce a lot more code way faster that solves your problems way better, mm-hmm. right? right? So you are fueling stuff back into Copilot at a rate far higher than you were able to do before, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you individually aren't going to make that much of a difference. But if, if that's true of millions of programmers who are all of a sudden able to put out 30 40% more uh, high-quality code than they were before, you know, and it just keeps compounding. I mean, it, it is then, easily just in the month that I've been using it. It has easily increased my uh, my code output, but like functional code output meeting my objectives. Not like oh, I just kept on adding features because I could sort of yeah, thing, right? yeah. But but like to for me to accomplish what I was trying to accomplish, it has easily decreased the time requirement by thirty plus percent. Jesus, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a, so, it's a huge huge. That's like, ridiculous. Yeah, because yeah, some of the like, stuff that seriously. I've been doing is like yeah, without getting into the weeds. Um, I'm a tooling first programmer because of the ADHD stuff and because I feel like that's the way to do it. Um, and so a lot of what I'll do is like, uh, is do a lot of specification where I'll like basically in another form of code, describe all the stuff that I need to be able to write the code. Right. And that's like pretty, pretty boring shit, right? It's pretty right. boring. <laughs> and, and it's often things like taking somebody else's documentation and then converting it into these like structures and stuff, right? Uh, very boring, very tedious. It's just like moving data from one form to another. That's the kind of shit that this stuff is really good at. Mm-hmm. And and it also reinforces good practices because the better your practices are, the easier it can understand, you know, quote unquote understand what you're trying to do and then give you results that are more and more likely to yeah. work. It's Which like, is actually, you're then spending more, you're able to spend more time writing more unique code yeah, that is that is new. That's new right? to your problem. It's new to your problem, which yeah. means you are more more rapidly fueling more p- patterns and more and different patterns into yeah. GitHub Copilot, so that it gets a, a, a broader uh, base of understanding of your needs. Right. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So like these things all compound on themselves. Uh, but there's an infinite stream of problems and we'll never run out. So that's okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, I think that's it. So to me, the, the, there's a whole bunch of other really interesting discussions about, about GitHub Copilot uh, that we haven't touched on. And, and we won't unless somebody asks questions in a future episode um, about various ethics-related things, about where the code is coming from and all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. Um, but the thing – this aspect of it, of like the, the fear of robots taking over and, and, all, and all this kind of stuff. And like they worry about people then just writing more bad code. Like all, there are all these fears out there related to it. And they look the same to Seth's point of, they look the same as every single time things have every gotten Every time easier. something changes. Or every time something changes. Yeah. But it's mostly about it getting easier. There's this, there's this general, uh, there's this general uh, response that people who are good at a thing that's hard always have when that thing starts to get easy. Right, which is oh no! Now people can come in knowing less, right? Mm-hmm. And to them, that's a 
that by default, it's a bad thing. And there were a lot of people speaking out against the printing press because they believed that people would become sort of empty headed because you're just know, reading now or whatever. Because now, now they could store all the stuff that they've ever learned. They could just write it down and like they could store it in books, you know, and whatever. And, and, you, don't and, have to and, all, and you could just like, yeah, you don't have to memorize stuff anymore because you could just go pick up a book and read it out of the book. And so everybody's Same thing just going to Google, be, right? It's like, yeah, you're able to search for stuff you don't store, which is true. You don't store it anymore. In your head, yep. but that doesn't mean what well, people. Well, yeah, the, the question is: is why is the uh, why is the baseline assumption that that it's bad to not do that, right? Because because what I would like my my very deep belief is that the only thing that really matters, like, is and actually the thing that people are particularly good at, just as a organism, is the ability to understand why and to see patterns, right? The details is stuff for robots mm-hmm. and books, right? Because you need to like work through some amount of details to, until you grok the pattern and understand the why, right? But once you have that, you can actually just recompute a whole bunch of stuff because you already know why, like given some piece of data, even if you've forgotten tons of details. But like there's infinite stuff to know. It, yeah, infinite but, but also stuff to know. Pe- like why, people have why a- should that be in your brain? People, people have a. I think there's a dual aspect of like pride and also regret that kind of comes into these things, right? Which is like, if you've ever driven somewhere and uh, and you like say to somebody like, "Hey, uh, is there like a good you know coffee shop around or whatever?" All you need is the name of the coffee shop because you mm-hmm. can look it up on Google Maps, right? But if that person is has lived in that town for a long time or whatever. You know, they've got a sense of pride of like being able to give you turn by turn directions of exactly where to go, right? <laughs> right. And like, oh yeah, you're gonna take a ride at the KFC and blah blah blah. And like for them, that's like they 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 can demonstrate a mastery over the location and also they, you know, they're they're proud of that fact, whatever. But and it kind of sucks that nobody cares anymore and that that information well, actually isn't a, useful. <laughs> you know, we talk about this with, with game dev a lot, which is there's a, there is a seductiveness to hard things, to being able to do a hard thing or a thing that was a, a pain in the ass to accomplish. But the reality is that the, the end product that you output is the only thing people care about. They don't care about how hard it was for you to make a game. Mm-hmm. No one cares. And yeah. this, is, this is the yeah. core thing you have to understand that I feel like for me, it took a long time to understand. It was like the the idea that I could have a lot of pride in like finally finishing something that took me a very long time. The reality was that if the output didn't match an actual expectation from someone, or didn't solve the problem, or didn't actually do what it needed to do a hundred percent, then the fact that I had worked so hard on it was completely irrelevant. Even if it did match, it was still irrelevant. Yeah, like even if true. Yeah, no, yeah, it's true. Yeah, no one cares. Right. It's sort of like a it's a non considered part of the equation. People are looking at the output that they need, not at the input that you put in. So I think that's where it gets it gets so wrinkly because you get these devs who really want to build engines, right? And like I spent like a years on this engine, and it's like you don't have anything. There's no game. Yeah. Like I got I don't care. I can't possibly care <laughs> right. about this. Like <laughs> right. you know, if I can't it, play even this. If, yeah, even in instances where say it takes us, you know, a long time to put together uh, like new tech that we're working on for something or else. Uh, the thing that always catches us, I think that always makes you know any of us very concerned is always just the question of like, okay, it took us like a week to do X, two weeks to do Y. Does, did we, do we have anything that anyone gives a shit about? Or is that just like two weeks of hard it's, work and now we're patting ourselves on the back for doing? 
You know what I mean? Right. Is the game better? How, are we able to deliver something bigger and better in a way that meets our uh, intent, you know, that we couldn't mm-hmm. do before? Or did we just spend a bunch of time working real hard? Because you can't sell that. Yeah. <laughs> and, there, and, there, I mean, and there's some important nuance here too, right? Because cause this, this is all about audience. Because when we say like, oh, nobody cares if Correct. something was really hard, uh, it's not true that nobody does, right? It's that you have to understand what you're doing, who it's for, why you're doing mm-hmm. it, the way you're doing it, and so on. Because there's a there's a whole com- uh, and a large community of people who love the idea of handmade things, right? And they want somebody who very specifically did work very hard on that thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because uh, that has a meaning to them, right? So, but only to a point, you know. Like if if you have uh, an option to buy, like let's say let's say you could buy some tomatoes that are like ten dollars a tomato because someone just painstakingly you know, cultivated these tomatoes uh, for months and months and months and gave care to each individual one, right? And they're just exorbitantly expensive because that's all that this person was able to do because it took so fucking long for each one, right? Uh, Or you could get them for like 50 cents a tomato, you know, for the, the bundle next to it. And they look pretty dang good also, and it's fine, right? Yeah, but again, there's a market. There's a market for the first for the former too. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not that, but the point here is that there's nothing inherently valuable in about hard stuff, about hard work. Somebody else right. has to value it if they're going to value it. Right. And, and the assumption, because we're all taught about the whole work ethic thing. And the thing that's really important about what you do is you just work your ass off. Right. Then we talk about that as if that's the value, except that's not guaranteed to be what valuable. people actually value. Right. Cause what people mm-hmm. actually value is the output on it. And, but the output can mean the time that goes in also, right? If that's described as part of the output for a market that wants that as part of mm-hmm. what they're, what they're interested in. Um, but, but they're decoupled by default, right? Yeah. But yeah. so, yeah, so I think the, but the, the point here is that if you find yourself uh, with whatever you do, um, looking at the newcomers coming into that thing and which could be anything and being annoyed or frustrated or angry in some way. Because they have it easier than you, right? They don't know all the things that you know. Then you're being an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but mean, yeah, well, this is this is also no different than than people talking about uh, generational differences yeah, exactly. in, in what you would call a common knowledge, right? I often hear about uh, people from older generations than ours lamenting the fact that people from our generation are not very good at stuff like auto repair or or house repair projects, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like people from our generation are actually far more likely to live in cities, not own cars, not own houses, right? But also um, think of the cars and houses, like cars in particular. Cars have changed a fuckload. Yeah, you got to right. pop open the hood of your Chevy Volt hybrid electric fucking yeah. car and, and try to figure out that. how. Much, <laughs> what do you? What do you get? What are you an electrical engineer and a mechanic now? Yeah, you know, that's not gonna happen. Uh, there's no yeah, oil it, to change. What? Yeah, there's probably yeah. some somewhere, but where? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but also, yeah, but also, you know, and because of those things, um, yeah, either you're not going to have a car, or if you, if an issue comes up with it, you know, you you take it to the shop to somebody who has the time to master all the different dimensions of all the different things about cars. Right. And so, but, but of course our generation has knowledge. Um, you know, when we were kids, we were always the ones who had to get the VCR clocks. And shit like that. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> you know, because because we had the time to figure that stuff out while our parents were busy fixing their know, cars, per, fixing their cars, and trying to trying to you know feed us. Um, and so, every, like every generation has some kind of knowledge uh, that comes from their technological habitat, right? Mm-hmm. And they're always lamenting the the ones both above them and below them in age about mm-hmm. the knowledge gaps, right? But nobody really controls any of it. We we all just kind of landed somewhere at a point in time, and we learned what we needed to learn None based on what what it, mattered at the time. It's not right? intentional, right? Like people are not like. You know, people coming through today are not intentionally learning less about X, like whatever field they're going to go into, right? They're not doing that on purpose. The education system and the industry has changed so that when they came mm-hmm. into it, they were then taught different things, right? Like that's yeah. that's what actually happened. And and hopefully, I mean, I have lots of things to say about the education system in general, but like in principle, it's supposed to be that these things are teaching you what you need to know today, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so the fact that that's different now than it is, you know, was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it's good. whatever is, good. yeah. It, well, and even, even if it isn't, it's just, it's just what it is, you know, like it's just different. No, but I think and, the point is it is good because the reality is the context, the world's context has shifted. So if you, if you're getting an education from the 1950s, if you're getting the same kind oh, yeah, of education. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's I'm, what I mean. I'm like saying the shift itself might not necessarily be good that you're having to adjust to. Um, yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. 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 The world context could be garbage, but like yeah, you yeah. need to be able to deal with garbage is sort of the point. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 So, I mean, like, so I, I today to be a successful programmer, for example, uh, you have to be able to output much more functional end user uh, features, right? Far, far more mm-hmm. than somebody who went through software stuff, you know, 30 years ago or even 10 years ago, right? Because at that time you had to do so much more to create so much less, right? The only way today that you can now do as much as is required is by not paying attention to the underlying details and focusing on the higher layer abstractions. And this is true for everything. This is true for, it's not just programming, right? Yeah, it's true for everything is as we can accomplish more, we have to do that at a higher layer of abstraction. And so this isn't a thing to lament Right, it sure as shit isn't a thing to be angry at somebody else for for the fact that the context that they learned in is different. Right, that's uh, that's absurdist gatekeeping, and you should not be doing that. Yeah, yeah, get on board. You know, yeah. see see what see what all the youngins are so excited about these days because your life's probably get a lot easier if you just you know looked yeah. at what they were doing and <laughs> stopped stopped holding on to all the stuff that you've been doing. Uh, no, which isn't to imply. Just to be clear, it's not to apply that uh, C. Price question asker was saying any of these things. Oh, we're just no. talking yeah. about we're just talking about the general attitude that people have toward uh, toward new. But it's new not just it's not just things. new either, right? Because it's it's the point is like there's there's also nothing bad or anything about somebody working on the low level stuff, the, the lower layers of abstraction, right? Uh, and in fact, we just still always need that. We still as as the layers of abstraction build. That doesn't mean the stuff underneath somehow ceased to be, right? We still need people who do all that stuff. And even if we didn't need that, that stuff is still really cool and really interesting to some people, right? And so – Well, it's it's about understanding the the tool for the job, right? Which is – that if if there are far easier and faster ways to do you know end user content development, but you're like, no, I'm doing it in assembly language. (laughs) It's like, well, you know, don't though. Uh, (laughs) If you if you're reusing assembly language, do it because that's the only option you have to solve the problem you're trying to solve. Uh, so, 
All right, we have time for one last question. Uh, we'll have to keep it a little, little, sh- little shorter than usual. That's you guys. not. Okay. Yeah, that's not going to okay. work. Just, just okay. Okay. All right. Yeah, you go. Gonna, this is a bold ask. Okay. Go. I'm, I'm counting on you guys. Okay. I'm telling, you, I'm telling you that you can't. All right. This question comes from Mimabip Gorky, who says, "Which parts of your design by chaos presentation do you now disagree with?" Uh, that would require remembering it. So, so the <laughs> overall, so the overall gist of the design by chaos presentation I gave at GDC was that uh, we set sort of a vague direction for a game. So in the case of original Crash Ants, it was like we want an open world crafting game with with jokes and pets and quests. Okay, and then we just kind of start adding features that seem like they're going to get us in that direction. Um, and uh, we routinely then play the game as it is and then kind of evaluate how close are we to to that vision and what we feel like is the next missing piece. Um, and sometimes that means rebalancing the game to understand it better. And other times that means adding a new feature and then reevaluating. So it's this very kind of tight iterative loop. Um, I would say the one thing from that that I – disagree with was there was a, a section in there where we talked about uh, the good enough principle. Okay. And I think my standards for good enough have changed. <laughs> well, the, uh, the principle is still the same. The principle is still there, but one of the things that that was true at the time and for quite a while afterwards was I, I used the example of the wampit, right? Which is that we said when you a creature in this game, it's going to do sort of a general um, like area smash attack and uh, that's it, right? And so then Sam whipped up the Wampet parts, the Wampet concept, and sent it over and I put it in and then that's it now. It's, it's in there. Um, and I think one of the things that came from that approach was it was so fast and loose that – for example, we had me doing all the animation and code, which was very time consuming. And also we didn't have we didn't take the time to have any kind of an art pipeline or any kind of an error checking step or anything like that to sort of make sure that things were moving quickly, that we had good feedback loops uh, on the art and stuff like that. So it was very much kind of a this is the asset we have, it's done now, and we're gonna move forward kind of a approach. Um but that's not part of the design by chaos sort of, you know, like philosophy, right? Well, it kind of was because a big part of it was to try to be moving forward as quickly as possible at all times in the game. Um, and we did we did kind of do the iterative loop on on mechanics and stuff, but we didn't really apply that to, to everything necessarily. There's an implied um, deal with it mentality, actually, uh, I think associated with it, which is that if I make an asset, then now you have to deal with it. Or if you decide to put a random feature in, then now I have to deal with it uh, and vice versa. Yeah. In a way that's not it's not remotely linked to um, actually what I think is ends up creating good content per se. Um, because like when people hear the word chaos, they typically think about that, which is people just kind of doing stuff. S- somebody um, thinking, this would be cool to have. Uh, and then it's just in there now, right? And then everybody yeah. else has to kind of adjust. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah. and we uh, yeah, do have that a bit, but now it's a lot more collaborative. Yeah, I would I actually argue that there isn't a difference in approach from what you described that talk and what we're doing now. There are different. There are a lot of differences in details um, of yeah. The overall approach is still. I, I think the overall I approach is, is the same. Yeah. But I think I think yeah. what what 
we meant by, and I think even what we meant by good enough, right? Because good enough just means basically the moment you hit the benchmark you're going for, you say, great, put it in, right? So when it comes to this idea of like Sam saying, oh, here's here's the wampet, and then mm-hmm. Seth saying, oh, yeah, this this is good enough, right? The problem wasn't the approach and also want the wampet is great, <laughs> but, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't that that part was a, was a problem, right? Because for, at the time for us, the good enough, like what was good enough meant something very different. Mm-hmm. And so today with questions too, good enough means if somebody sees a screenshot that has this thing in it, uh, they'll want to buy the game. And while they're playing the game, when they see this thing, they will have like an emotional reaction, like a meaningful, deep emotional reaction to it and to how it moves and to how it interacts with the world, right? And and so that's what good enough means now. Yeah. Which just We're changes asking. dramatically how we can do that and how we can do it efficiently. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think yeah. The, the biggest one for me is that uh, I, I don't recall if this was the case, but there was no – I don't think there was a talk of the biggest problem with Zyma Chaos, which is uh, the detection of early outs, basically. Um, because it's it's extremely easy to iterate and iterate and iterate on mm-hmm. uh, particular things, especially on fine details that that can seem paramount because of a playthrough that happened right now. So this is why part of what we've been doing is trying to separate our playthrough uh, times from not just doing playthroughs right before planning, but like actually a, like a day or two prior to the planning session. Because there's a ton of recency bias in playing those things in terms of what matters. There's a ton of focus on small things. Uh, that yes, do matter kind of, but the biggest arguments we have now, I would say, uh, between Seth and I on the day on the daily is, is can we stop working on this part now? Like, can we actually stop? Because yeah. the major concern is actually now always in because of the the chaotic design pattern in too deeply following down uh, a particular path that doesn't actually again, as we talked about previously, like give you delivered output that is meaningfully different. Rather, just like kind of improves some stuff, and the point is that well, like most that, things that, don't matter in this. In yeah, this well, that, that just comes to the back to the good enough question. Yeah, right? Which yeah I, don't, I don't think that's about the chaos approach because that's actually just about there, there's nothing you can do that isn't an iterative. Um, if it's a creative process, whether it's programming, whether it's making art, um, in all cases, there's always something else you could still do or change yes. or tweak. Um, and so, I think that's that's an inherent problem that that as you sort of bubble up to the part of like the plan, right? So, cause if there's a plan where here are the jillion things that we need to do laid out with decent specs, right? Then you still have to deal with the fact that you can within any one of those little pieces, keep on kind of mm-hmm. doing stuff. Right. But there's at least a finite set of things at which you're doing that in, right. And you could plan it versus an iterative design. So that mm-hmm. at the top level, it's also iterative. Then there's no, there isn't a known number of things that have to get done. Yes. Right? You, you don't have an established benchmark actually on that mm-hmm. meta level, which I think yeah. that was what, yeah. So kind of the, the major piece of it to me was, was that, which is that yeah. we had a, the vision for the original questions was very vague, but I think it matched what our, what our capabilities were at the time. Um, the vision for something like crash Lands too is actually very concrete in terms of what we're trying to do, mm-hmm. which I think allows a much easier or a more productive um, work going into it because it's easier to ask the question, is this good enough? Because you know what you're comparing it to, right? As opposed to being yeah. like, well, no, of course not, because you could always do more, which was sort of roughly what yeah. the original was. Yeah. yeah. So I, I would say that the, the disagreements about early outs, to me, it's not really about early outs. It's just about trying to reconcile differences of opinion about whether something is good enough and what good enough 
means for that particular. Yep. Yeah. That's the and main also, feature. To be honest. Yeah. Well, and it's one of those things that it, that's, and that's why you need to have your agreed upon design pillars and your agreed upon ideas of like what, what kinds of benchmarks you have about what it means for something to be good enough. Right. Um, but even when you have, which so you need that. So at least you can bring the, bring things back to those, um, those common agreements. Um, but those don't describe details, right? They can't. So there's not, there's not a rule book you can have where it's yeah. like, okay, when is a piece of art good enough? Right. And where everybody will see that list of things and see the piece of art and be in full agreement that yes, we've, we've done this, it's time to move on. Right. Uh, it's really useful to have something explicit to get, that gets you as close as possible to that so that everyone's starting from the same point. And that's what they're trying to accomplish and agrees on that point. But then you're still going to have those differences of opinion. That's where the arguments mm -hmm. come from. Yeah. So overall, I think I think Design by Chaos talk still holds. There's a lot of nuance to things. Uh, but the overall approach, I, th I think, is still good. I think it's a good yep. one. It's particularly so. good for ADHD. Because I think yeah. – Well, because I think uh, – which we probably have talked about at least a little bit. But, but um, with Crash 2, we started – with a much more intense, like trying to plan and trying to design from the outset. And it didn't work for a bunch of reasons, but mostly just like the moment to moment doing of the work was unpleasant. Right. Well, and, and I think your, your good enough metric gets an extra dimension to it, which is, mm -hmm. is this part of the plan? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, which does require kind of checking back on more documentation. And also it carries with it an implicit, um, an implicit idea that if something is adhering to the plan, then it's by nature at least not bad, right? Um, which is not necessarily always the case, right? Because we actually have deviated quite a bit from some of the original core ideas that were laid out in the design document. Um, still working toward the the intended vision of what emotional experience we want to deliver, but we found that our original ideas were just too narrow or not uh, working well with other systems yeah, or, or too so, big in one place and too small in another place and, and so on. Right. Yeah. So uh, sticking to so, the plan isn't necessarily always good. It is necessarily right? good, but, but it is important right. to acknowledge that, that the way that all three of us need to work is with our ADHD brains, which means we need stuff to be interesting and we just have to be hard, uh, just kind of all of the time. And so if we have a checklist of just, okay, here's all the features, here's, here's all the specs, <laughs> here's all the whatever. Uh, even if that actually was a good way to produce games and like in the very general sense, and, and it might be for some teams, uh, it's not good for us, it couldn't work for us, right? <laughs> and I think that, that, but that distinction is important because depending on the kind of brain that you have, different approaches to this will mm -hmm. work better or worse. Yeah. Definitely could have just called that talk designed by ADHD, yeah. you know, but I didn't know that I had it at the time yeah. or that all of us had it. So, you know, that's a thing. There so, it is. Now, that, that's all the time we have for this week. We, we, we made it. Good job, guys. I'm proud. I'm proud. I'm proud of us. <laughs> uh, we'd like to thank our producers, Fat Bard and Jen Coster, for putting the podcast together. And thanks to our community moderators who keep our Discord running. To get more involved in the Butterscotch community, you can just go to podcast.bscotch.net, where we have links to the Discord, a way for you to donate, and links to the archives. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.